A story I, I sometimes tell uh, jokingly is one time I was delivering a patient and she kept looking over my shoulder and I realized she was looking at the clock. And I said, what, what, what's going on? And she said, well, I've got a prenatal appointment in 10 minutes. And I said, you're, you're delivering your baby. Let it go. <laughs> it's okay. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. Welcome back, my friends. Before I introduce today's guest, I would love to read two reviews of our podcast. This one comes from Kelly Tyen, and she says, health is wealth. I am loving how passionate Maya is about helping others live fit and healthy lifestyles. Her episodes are extremely informative, and I'm learning so much on how to level up my own health. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much for those positive words. This other one comes from Katie TT, and she says, inspiring. Inspire me to lead an even healthier diet and lifestyle via your program. Thanks for all the great info and insights. And so I'm so excited to hear from all of you. I say at the end of every episode, please leave a review and share this episode with someone that may benefit. I have made it so much easier for you to be able to leave a review. Simply go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash HLS. That's for Healthy Lifestyle Solutions. I'm so excited about today's guest, Dr. John McHugh. Preconception care was first introduced in the 1990s as a specialty clinic for women in England who previously had a poor pregnancy outcome. Since its inception, the CDC released recommendations for PCC, which is defined as a set of interventions that aim to identify and modify biomedical, behavioral, and social risk to a woman's health or pregnancy outcome through prevention and management before pregnancy occurs. Dr. John Paul McHugh is an OB-GYN who has been in practice for many years. He's a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a diplomat of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the co-chair of the Women's Health Interest Group for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. In this conversation, we also talk about the upcoming Lifestyle Medicine Conference that will take place in November. So visit lmconference.org and also Dr. John McHugh has a Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine Facebook group. I will also add that link in the show notes. As always, the full bio and the links for each of my guests can be found on the podcast website. That's healthylifestylesolutions.org. And also follow me on social media. On Instagram, my handle is at Maya underscore HLS underscore podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome, Dr. McHugh. Thank you so much, Maya. And I do have to tell you something. I normally wouldn't give you such a prompt update, but one of the most proud things I've ever done was I got actually elected as a fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine since we last spoke. And I'm really, really proud of that because yeah. that's really a, a very small number of people. Dr. Greger has gotten that nomination. And uh, I really want to be part of that movement and keep building that going forward. Well, congratulations. I was aware of it. And we're going to have to make sure that we add that to the show notes. You are doing so much. And just for any new listeners who have, who uh, were not aware that you were on the podcast before, first of all, I will link that uh, episode in the show notes. But I want to let people know that you're very active in general in many areas related to lifestyle medicine, but you also co-lead the women's Well, You really do lead and and do such a wonderful job with the Women's Health Interest Group. And I'm very honored to be a member of the group. I'm very honored to connect with you and many of the healthcare providers from the group. And so we're going to be focusing on that as well. So is there anything else that you'd like to mention that was not mentioned in the bio? No, that's great. I, I think you've got a great update there. That's fantastic. Thank you. Okay. And then towards the end, we'll also let our listen, listeners know about the uh, Lifestyle Medicine Conference that's coming up and uh, the Women's Health Interest Group and its involvement, because it seems like every year, perhaps at least in, last year, 2021, they, the group itself did sort of a pre-conference class. 
Absolutely. And that is being planned this year. I actually stepped away from the planning of the pre-conference for women's health so I could work with Megan Grega, who I know you've had on this program before, on planning the overall workshop. And, uh, you know, I, I, I teased Dr. Grega that um, when we had the final selections, I felt like a kid on Christmas Day. Like I ran down and I, I saw all these great presents. So we're getting a real great array of fantastic speakers. But there is going to be a women's health workshop, the um, I think the Sunday afternoon before, and that's headed by Dr. Mahima Galati, who uh, heads our reproductive work group. And she's also heading the endocrinology work group. She's very involved in endocrinology and reproduction. Wonderful. And I also have here for those uh, that are watching the video, and if you're listening, you've probably heard me reference Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan. It's a wonderful book uh, with many contributors from the American um, College of Lifestyle Medicine's Women's Group and other areas. And so, Dr. McHugh, you're a contributor to the chapters here related to preconception. I love this book. I think every woman needs to go out and get a copy for herself. So <laughs> I'll go a step further with that, Maya. I would feel if I for if it was my sister, my mother, my aunt, I would want them to see that in their doctor's office, right? I'd love oh, it to see yes. it be in every provider's office and really be the basis for, for help. You're absolutely right. I mentioned on the podcast a couple of years ago that when I went for my regular checkup, well woman's kind of uh, checkup and I saw the OBGYN. You know, I asked as I'm moving into that phase of menopause, is there anything that I can do to prevent hot flashes? And she said, nope, nothing that you can do. It doesn't matter what you eat. And so I've had this sort of conversation before. And I, um, as we're talking and doing the exam, she says, well, what do you do for a living? And so I said, well, I, I'd like to share information about lifestyle medicine. And I just very humbly kind of went through everything. Later on, she comes and she says, well, you know, I think there is something that you can do. Maybe there are some foods that you can use to minimize your risks. So it's about being gentle in how we bring this information to professionals who have spent so many years of their lives invested in, in really wanting to be the best in their field. So I really appreciate that. You know, I'll tell you, Maya, you bring up a really interesting point, and I've really tried to be a little bit more of a listener with patients because I often find patients that are really well-informed, and I want to kind of take their temperature before I move forward because sometimes our patients are so well-informed, and to build on that foundation is what I try to do. Yes, yes. I started saying that this episode is for anyone who's, uh, any woman who's interested in um, preparing, optimizing their health for uh, conception, but you are the expert. So who is this episode for? And can we start as we move along with this conversation talking about what exactly is preconception health and what are the benefits to it? Why should women understand that there's something that they can do now before they conceive? You know, I think this is a really, really important topic. And I'd like to say this is for everybody, right? I mean, you could be an involved partner of a patient, of a woman who's trying to get pregnant. I think it'd be important to know so that you can help support and reinforce that. You could be a family member. You could be a patient, a provider. I mean, everyone should know this. One of the things that's really fascinating to me is we know that if we've really delivered good preconception, and I want to actually add something I'll explain in a second, interconception health, we could do more good than all of prenatal care that we're doing right now. We're starting so far behind often when we start with pregnancy or in the interval between pregnancies, which is interconception health. These are really times where we should be helping patients go into their pregnancy as healthy as possible. It's often too late. Can you explain to us what prenatal health is and how does that compare to preconception? So patients enter prenatal care at a whole variety of different points. On average, a woman who is coming in for their first prenatal visit or maybe their first positive pregnancy test in the last year had three to four visits to a healthcare provider. Often at that time, there was something happening. They might have had a medical condition that was undiagnosed. Diabetes and hypertension are two of the most common ones that we see, but there's a whole variety of others. They could be on a medication that could be causing risk to their pregnancy, but often those issues aren't dealt with when they come in for that prior visit. And that's what's really important. We can try to address things at that prior visit so they enter prenatal care a bit healthier. Standard prenatal care in America is often the same over a nine-month period, you know, starting once a month 
to every two weeks to every week at the end of the pregnancy, obviously a little bit different for higher risk patients, but the time to really address those issues is before pregnancy if possible. Okay, that makes sense. That So prenatal care being from the time of conception and through the entire pregnancy, a woman, you know, is interested in making sure that she's living a stress-free life or that she's eating the right foods. She's interested in her health at that moment. What we're going to talk about is all the other things that happen or the life before that conception. Absolutely. Those are really, really important things to bring up. Sometimes I, um, once patients become pregnant, they're often very, very serious about taking their vitamin every day. And those vitamins sometimes, let's be honest, they have side effects as well for patients. And so I'll often say to them, the important time to take those vitamins was before you were pregnant. That's really when Mm -hmm. it's critical. Or actually, I should even say more broadly, to eat a whole food plant-based diet, to enter your pregnancy as healthy as possible. And when you try to catch up after you found out you're pregnant, sometimes it's, it's harder to catch up. Yes, it, it really is. And I'm wondering if women in general feel that it, lifestyle doesn't really play a role in terms of the development of their unborn child or how they how they do during the pregnancy in general. But I think what we're going to learn is that by understanding lifestyle changes and enhancements that you can do before pregnancy, you could actually improve that quality, not only your your pregnancy experience, but also just um your chances of just even being fertile, because we're talking about women, um, women's health before conception. So women at that time may or may not know whether they're fertile. Um, also, by taking into consideration these lifestyle improvements, you improve the health of the, the child over their life, really. You know, what's really beautiful as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about something Dean Ornish frequently goes back to. He said, it's so interesting, because we always come back to multiple disease conditions, but one cure for them. So what works for improving fertility is often what optimizes preconception health and optimizes infant health. We're really talking about the same prescription with many manifestations. So Dr. Nancy Erickson, as you know, came on and she's also a contributor to this book. So she came on a couple of years ago to talk about what she sees in her practice. And I was really surprised to learn that the BMI, BMI really puts women at high risk for so many complications. And she talked about preeclampsia and also gestational diabetes. And so I guess I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that. Why would a woman want to make an effort towards achieving a healthy BMI before she becomes pregnant? Well, let's start with just admitting that BMI is nowhere near a perfect tool. Um, we, we use it to, to assess people. Uh, I'm about six foot five and I have a quite a high BMI, uh, and even when I get to a healthy weight. So it's nowhere near perfect, but for something that we use to kind of give broad advice to patients, I think it works relatively well. Um, There are more sensitive tests we could ultimately do, because what we're really looking is that that, um, inflammatory contribution of adipose tissue, right? So we find that adipose tissue um, is hormonally active in patients, and does increase inflammation for them. And that is what we think is associated with diabetes, hypertension, a few other things on down the line for patients. Um, and the problem when somebody is pregnant, pregnant is trying to address some of these issues. It's really not the right time. Ideally, we'd have patients enter pregnancy with a normal BMI. One of the very difficult things for patients is often when they have a high BMI, they're having irregular cycles. Some of them aren't aware that they are fertile at the time, and some of them are quite surprised because they're not having normal cycles, that they're quite far along in the pregnancy by the time we do see them. So these things are challenging, and we do see that BMI is a trigger to metabolic disease, diabetes and hypertension, and these are related to some of the things we see in pregnancy, disorders of preeclampsia that we often see. So yes, we would like to address them, but it's very challenging to address them in pregnancy, Women with high BMI are not only at risk for a high birth weight baby, but also a low birth weight baby. And we have to be Mm -hmm. sensitive to that. And so how do you advise women when you do, um, and especially when I think of what your contribution, the chapter that you wrote on preconception health, 
take, considering the pillars of lifestyle medicine, if you'd like to kind of go through them and tell and basically tell us how, how can a woman optimize her health so that she can have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy child? Well, there's so many, so many parts to it. I think the most important thing is to really look at our, our society as a whole. There was a study that we uh, quoted in a recent paper that if you even look at just four basic pillars of life, only 3% of Americans are really following those basic guidelines. Things like getting 150 minutes of exercise a week, getting healthy sleep and eating a basic healthy diet. So we're trying to kind of look at all of those. I'd say one thing that could happen is if you are someone who's starting to say, boy, in the next year or so, I'm really open to the possibility of pregnancy. For a lot of patients, it's not a either or. It's a, I'm open to that, or that's a possibility, something I'm thinking about, is really if you can involve all of your family members. And we've seen this with smoking cessation. It's so much easier to quit if your family is supportive of you and they quit as well. Um, sleep, we know, is critically important. You talked about some of the um, issues related to BMI. It's very hard to lose weight if you're not sleeping right. We know that getting adequate sleep can help reverse some of the changes of preeclampsia. So starting to think about how do we redesign our lives to get better sleep? I'll tell you a silly thing that I do. When I go into a hotel room anymore, I walk around the room and I cover all the light sources. Do you ever see this in hotels nowadays? There's a little light for the TV and the microwave and the... How's that helping people sleep. So let's start to think about how do we redesign our lives to start to address the pillars of lifestyle medicine and involve our partners and our families in that as well. I imagine that it's very difficult for a woman to kind of slow down. I mean, we're living in these times where life is so busy. We have so much on our plates. And then suddenly a woman has to sort of consider self-care as it is, it's very difficult for us to do that. Um, So slow down, take care of yourself and, and start to think about your future and your children. And so, yeah. So please tell us more. What uh, else can women do? These are, you're, you're bringing up a, a story I, I sometimes tell jokingly is one time I was delivering a patient and she kept looking over my shoulder and I realized she was looking at the clock and I said, what's going on? And she said, well, I've got a prenatal appointment in 10 minutes. And I said, you're delivering your baby. I mean, let it go. <laughs> It's okay. Um, Right. I think it's really, really hard. And I think that probably the biggest challenge that we're seeing is we've had women enter the workforce, which is wonderful, but we often haven't seen any of their family members take some of the traditional duties off their plate. So they're trying Mm -hmm. to do everything. And I think we live in a society where people are expected to be superhuman and they don't see a good way to take things off their plate. I was at a retreat recently and we went around the room and people talked about what they'd gotten out of it. And the number one answer I heard from people was, I kind of calmed down my racing thoughts. And I think this is common for everyone. But if you add a pregnancy on top of it, boy, we've got a real, real problem now. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, one question I had for you, were you involved at all in something called Project Lift with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine? Sounds familiar. Please tell us about it. Wonderful. There was a professor from Australia, Dr. Darren Morton, And I wonder, he'd be a wonderful guest to have on this show, where he did a whole series of videos really talking about little changes we can make in our life to try to make our life a little better. One of the ones I adopted is do a morning gratitude journal. There's really good science behind it. Start your day by thinking about what went well yesterday and try to take some of those worries off your plate. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I feel like we're kind of moving towards uh, talking about anxiety, depression, mental health. I was just working on a reel today for social media because I wanted to share a practice that I'm now doing early in the morning, which is a combination of Qigong and other energy work to help really set a good tone for myself to ground myself before I start off my day. Mm -hmm. So my days can be very hectic. I could be doing research or having interviews, but also just having Zoom calls. Like many people, we're trying to juggle a lot. And so I'm so glad that we're living in a time when all of these resources are becoming more and more common and available. You have mentioned how important it is to screen women for anxiety and depression. That's still, we're talking about preconception. Why is this important? You know, this is critically important. And I do want to, as I'm talking about screening, also put a plug in for what's called ACEs screening, 
I don't know if you've had some guests to talk about adverse childhood experience screening. I'm very lucky to practice in California, where our state surgeon general uh, made an initiative to really improve the rates of screening and awareness for this. And we actually have a covered benefit in California for providers to do that ACEs screening. The challenging part providers tell me is that uh, we can do the screening, but we often don't have the resources to refer patients who do need further help. I think that we as OBGYNs often don't do all that we can. I was lucky enough to work in a federally qualified health center where we did have social workers that could do some additional screening for patients for anxiety and depression. We are making a really major initiative, especially postpartum. I do want to point out um, we're moving to having extended postpartum care for all patients for up to 12 months who don't have other forms of insurance. Yeah, because one of the things we found was a third of maternal mortality is because of mental health issues. And those conditions aren't getting wrapped up by the six-week postpartum visit. Those conditions are often going on for months to years. And we really have the opportunity now to get patients into care. Wow. I love that. That I had not heard about the extended postpartum um, support. The dynamics of the family really have changed. I mean, we're talking about, yes, the woman has gone into the workforce, but also the extended family that people once knew and had there for support is no longer there. And uh, you often hear of, uh, and you know, at my age, you hear so-and-so friend is traveling out of state to support her daughter as she's having her first child. And then that's the reality that we're living in now. So I, I see how offering, extending the support for women 12 months into there after delivering is just wonderful. And you said now this is available where? Well, it's certainly available in California. I believe it's going through state by state, and it's going to be a national initiative that all states can opt in. But boy, oh boy, I can tell you for years practicing when care got cut off for some women at six weeks, it's really hard to get some of these conditions addressed. Right. And that anxiety of having to return back to the workforce six weeks after right. delivering, not being there to, to bond the way that a woman would want to bond with her yeah. child. Yeah, really- we touched a little bit about the importance of social support during pregnancy. And I was wondering if you wanted to say more about that. I think we were talking about family in general. Where else can women find support? One of the things that from a provider standpoint, I'm very interested in is uh, group prenatal classes. There's an organization called Centering Pregnancy that has been doing group prenatal classes. And it's one thing for me to talk to a patient about a condition, but if they can find someone else in the group who's dealing with a similar condition and some of those really practical workarounds that have helped with for people with working around some of these things. Boy, what's a tip, a little kind of interesting tip a friend of mine said, someone taught her to just look at food labels and look at the milligrams of sodium versus the calories. Have you ever heard this little practical everyday tip when you're shopping? And it's amazing sometimes you'll see something like a can of soup with three times as much sodium as there are in calories. And just as a very basic tool for patients to pick the right foods every day is something they might hear more likely from a peer than from me. How do we, um, in a world in which we don't have the same extended family networks that are traditional for humans for millions of years, how do we come up with other ways to address that? I'd also say you talked earlier about Zoom. I think Zoom is a kind of a double-edged thing, right? In a way, even just being able to listen to your podcast in the comfort of your home might help some people that don't have the same traditional family networks that we've always had as humans, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different things we can do to try to bring back that community. I think the most important thing is the work that you're doing, spreading information and helping people find the solutions that work for them, their life. Right. Right. Thank you. And yes, this is exactly why we do this work to uh, support women and talk about resources that are available. And when you said to bring back that community, I was actually thinking about Lamas classes back in the day and how popular they were. Right. And I thought about how women then had during their pregnancy, of course, this is during, not pre, but they would attend these kind of, to me, seem like meditative, relaxing exercises that would then support them during their delivery. But really, it was coming together as a community, as couples and meeting other 
pregnant women and really being able to have sort of like the social support or group support. Yeah. Is that sort of like what you were talking about, like coming back to that? You're bringing up a really good point. And, you know, as I think about it, I'm seeing less of that now than I did when I started 20, 25 years ago. And I think it's really unfortunate. I almost wonder it's because women have become so busy. They, they don't have time to do those classes, but yes. I think they'd be wonderful. Right. Absolutely. So you touched lightly on physical activity, but I was wondering if we can talk more about that. Really, yes, exercise before pregnancy, but also just concerns that women may have during a pregnancy. So if a female was a runner at one time or had a certain sport that she participated in, should she be concerned at a certain time during her pregnancy? You know, I'll tell you, Maya, if I was at the American College of OBGYN meeting last weekend, and it was really, really wonderful. There was a wonderful doctor, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, I don't know if you've ever heard of her name, who was out there speaking about how we get the right message out to people. And exercise and pregnancy is one of those ones where everybody has an opinion, what those opinions, whether they're true or not, and including some of us as doctors, the opinions we put out there are often not really evidence-based. One of the problems that we face is it's hard to fund this kind of research. And it's not something anybody necessarily wants to do is do an experiment on women in pregnancy to really find out. But what we do know is that the basic guidelines, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week, and maybe two episodes of strength building a week are good for pregnant women. There are a couple of exceptions that we uh, want to kind of avoid. This is anything where there could be some traumatic injury like dodgeball or something like that. I don't know too many of my patients that try to do things like that. But most basic things like walking or some basic aerobic exercise are really healthy for patients. We find a lot of pushback from family often with this. I think that sometimes family members will caution against that, not be as supportive of it. One caution I will tell patients, I'd say that the one thing I'd really want to be cautious about is dehydration making sure you're drinking enough water, you're eating a whole food plant-based diet that has a lot of natural healthy fluids in it, because dehydration in pregnancy is a real serious concern. Do you have from time to time patients that may bring up the topic of intercourse? We do. And it's another area where I think there's so much lack of uh, real good information. And we throw in kind of all the family tales that go on. And then we get the, add the internet on top of that. And boy, there's a a lot of information out there, and it's really hard to know. Uh, there are very, very few situations in which we tell a patient to avoid having a healthy sex life in pregnancy and doing what they enjoy. And I'm going to almost guess, since we have such good data on connection as being an important part of health, I think those patients are actually going to be healthier. The one situation where I'd, I'd maybe be a little bit uh, cautious about for traditional heterosexual couples especially is we do know that uh, male ejaculate does have some progestins in it, and that can stimulate contractions. So if somebody's at very high risk for preterm delivery, I'd ask them to back down from that. But if somebody wants to deliver, I've had some patients late in pregnancy that are begging for something to happen. Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm yeah. so glad you pointed it out. Just that romantic connection is still very important to a woman, especially probably during her pregnancy. Yeah. So yeah. we had Kaylee Anderson come on the show and she spoke to us about food. So she also spoke to us about environmental toxins. And so I was wondering if you can talk to us about something that is mentioned in the women's health book. So what are teratogens? So why should women who are planning on conceiving be concerned? Well, I... I did study a little too much Latin when I was a kid. So teratogen formally is going to be something that creates a monster. So that's actually what we think that there are substances that can cause organogenesis defects. So maybe a hand not forming correctly or a spinal column not forming correctly. We also know that there are substances that we don't get enough of in our diet that can help prevent some of those problems, like getting enough natural folate and folic acid supplementation if you need to. So that could be considered sort of the opposite of a teratogen because it helps normal formation of organs. But we do know that there are substances that can cause birth defects. The most famous one probably being thalidomide, which was a substance that was actually used to prevent preterm birth. 
and was given to women and did cause serious birth defects in the offspring of patients. I'm going to tell you, I have a little bit of a spin on this. I'd say the number one teratogen is sugar. The number one teratogen is sugar. The number one cause of birth defects, we see this in diabetics with significant heart, spine, and brain defects, is going to be having too much refined and processed sugar in their diet. Wow, this is so important. I'm glad that you brought this up. This is new information to me. We're hopefully getting better regulation on added sugars in foods, but it's amazing, Maya. You probably have, have seen this even in things like bread that you wouldn't suspect having added sugar has tremendous amounts of added sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're talking about, well, like I said, Kaylee was on just talking about concerns and challenges that people have just in adopting or incorporating more plant foods into their lives. But yeah. what we're saying is that during pregnancy, you really want to stay away from that refined sugar, the processed sugars. Really, Absolutely. processed foods can be loaded with sugar. I'd say even if you know that you're not kind of adding a spoonful of sugar to anything, looking at the labels, because sometimes they've already done it for you in the manufacturing process, right? So really look at those labels. Absolutely. I was surprised as I became plant-based and I learned to read labels. I was surprised to know that simple sauces like marinara sauce can have added sugar. Well, you can simply make it at home without incorporating all of that sugar. But it's when you learn how things are made. If you make them at home, they can be a little bit healthier. Are there foods that you recommend that your patients incorporate just for a healthier pregnancy? You know, we had actually a really interesting meeting for the American College of OBGYN. And we did have a speaker from Oregon Health Sciences University. We are getting new and updated dietary guidelines for Americans that are coming out. So there has been some back and forth, and I was actually surprised by a couple things. I'm going to follow up on a little bit more. There had been a lot of concern about fish in pregnancy. Some of that is backing down a little bit, but I would say for somebody who's plant-based, and I'm largely plant-based myself, that you can have some of the supplements do have DHA and some of the benefits of fish from algae forms, and you can Mm -hmm. take that there. So we are starting to see more importance placed on some of those substances, especially in fetal brain development that are critical. I do recommend to my patients to take supplemental folic acid, but whenever I talk about folic acid, I start with asking them to really make sure they get enough plant-based folate. I'd say for many of us, you know, 95% of Americans don't get enough fiber and 98% don't get enough potassium in their day-to-day diet. I think if patients could really focus on getting enough of those two things, most of the other things would take care of themselves, right? Mm. If you can get yourself into the 2% rather than the 98%, it'll take care of a lot of problems. Absolutely. Yes, that's a good point. And so potassium being found in not only bananas, but sweet potatoes, for example, what other foods have potassium and folate? Here I am in uh, sunny Southern California where 95% of the nation's dates are grown in the Coachella Valley near Palm Springs. And they're proud to say that dates are the highest source of potassium in any food. Yeah. And I actually use, I don't have much of a sweet tooth, but when I have people that do, I use a little bit of date syrup as a sweetener. And I think you've got some potassium and you've got some healthy natural sweetener if you need it. Yes, absolutely. I have learned to use dates and to even make like a date sauce. Um, yeah. Team Shoreside put together a nice recipe book, and that's what they use to sweeten some of their uh, desserts. And I say desserts, but, you know, like a blueberry muffin, for example, that you make at home. That's pretty cool. I just realized I put a plug in for one of my colleagues here. Dr. Ann Kennard has written a book. Uh, Do you know Ann Kennard? No. She is an OBGYN in Central California, and she wrote a cookbook. So uh, apparently it's a bestseller on Amazon. She'd be a great speaker. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Thank you for that plug. And so is that specific? Did she have her patients in mind when she wrote this book? She wrote it for things that work for herself and she wrote it for patients, but not just pregnant patients, for all women to take. Because we're so often, I think patients are so often expecting a supplement when we talk to them about something they need in their diet. And I'm actually asking them to think about how you can put it into your kitchen first and foremost. Yes. And so that's the difficult part about, well, I shouldn't say difficult. That's the new way of looking at life when a provider, a healthcare provider, a physician recommends changes, lifestyle modifications that we can make at home. It's it's sort of 
would I imagine can throw an individual off or make it even more appealing. Like, yes, please tell me more. There's something that I can do so that I don't necessarily have to rely on supplements. And as we actually talk about that, I was wondering if you could talk about some of those challenges that you see when it comes to preconception care. What holds back a woman from putting some of these lifestyle changes in place? Well, this is a really good point. And I wanted to thanks so much for coming back to preconception care. I think it's a really important thing to talk about. So I co-chair for the state of California, the Preconception Healthcare Council, and I've been working very closely with the National Center at the University of North Carolina. What we're really trying to do is tie the gaps that we face as a society in preconception care to some of the really bad pregnancy outcomes we find. What I'm seeing happen in hospitals in patient safety work they're doing is they're trying to stop the emergency that's already started, and we're getting better at that. But how about we try to stop the emergency from ever happening, right? That's what people would like to have happen. So one of the common problems we have in pregnancy is bleeding, and often that's preceded by anemia, and anemia is preceded by dietary changes that need to happen. So we're trying to get at the really the root cause of some of these problems so that we can avoid a pregnant woman needing a blood transfusion or having an even worse outcome at that point. With the Preconception Healthcare Council of California, what we've done is we've created 21 guidelines that we're going to make widely available. And these are for people, for instance, maybe a patient brings up a question to a social worker about how do they stop smoking or what can they do about anemia and just some very basic guidelines so that everybody's on the same team. One of the things I see that becomes a real problem for patients is they get mixed information. They hear one thing from their mother-in-law, a different thing from their doctor, a third thing from the social worker, and they're left to pick and choose what they think is the right opinion. So hopefully we can educate people more so that everybody's reinforcing that pregnant woman who's trying to make those lifestyle changes that can help her. Did you say there are 21 guidelines? 21 guidelines that we're calling the preconception interconception care. So not just for women who are about to get pregnant, but for somebody that's in between pregnancies, because that's a really incredible time to work on things too. Yes. And so is this something that we can link in the show notes? Are these guidelines available now? Yeah, we have our old ones that are five years old, but we have some updated ones with all the latest research for patients. We are finalizing, we're, we're dotting the I's and crossing the T's on them. We're trying to get to write them across the board in eighth grade literacy level so that really everybody yeah. can <laughs> and really make them widely available and also getting them translated into Spanish as well. There's oh, for every one of the 21, there's an algorithm mm-hmm. for a provider and a letter for a patient so that everybody can be educated and on the same page. Okay. That's awesome. Now, you also just touched on it, you know, being in between pregnancies. So say if a woman has had or continues, currently has a pre-existing condition, has had children in the past, and may have concerns about future pregnancies, what would you advise them? Well, I think it's really, really important. We're even at the very basic level of just getting a single postpartum visit is a challenge for some patients. So we're really trying to see if we can get everybody in for one visit so we can start to address some of these issues for them. Then when we're there, again, we're seeing, how can I say this? Sometimes things are not as consistent in healthcare as we'd like them to be. And I think the more we can educate people so that maybe the doctor was busy and forgot to check a box or order a test, if we have everybody educated, hopefully the nurse in the office can catch it. Or the patient may say, hey, doc, weren't you going to recheck my blood sugar after my pregnancy? So try to get everybody on the same page. The other thing that we find a lot is sometimes couples get pregnant and they don't really know what they're about to get into. And after they have their first child, they're a lot more motivated to get things right and make things better the next time around. So it's an incredible opportunity for us to really work with people. Unfortunately, the problem is once you have a newborn, get pretty busy, right? And it gets tough sometimes to follow through with these things. Yeah, that's right. And we're coming back around as we were talking about how social media and platforms like podcasts and and YouTube videos really help inform the public. So right now we're living at a time, and I said it before, where we're talking more, we're having a more common conversation about mental health and self-care. 
And so I think that as we continue to put this information out there and raise that awareness that, yes, you can take care of yourself before you become pregnant, but also during your pregnancy, like it's almost like encouraging a woman or giving her permission to take time so that she can enjoy this pregnancy. And it is difficult because of the way just our schedules. But I think the more we put it out there, the more it becomes a little bit more normal for women to come back to that beautiful experience experience of enjoying the fact that she can conceive, that she can bring a family into this world. Well, you bring, you said a really key word, Maya. I thought it was wonderful. Talked about this can be normal. You know, my father had manic depression. And I think I know people that often don't want to talk about those conditions in the same way they might talk about diabetes. And I think we need to normalize that and destigmatize these conditions so that our patients can come forward and bring it up. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Before we talk about the conference, this year's conference, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about preconception health? There is nothing else, but what I would encourage patients to do, and I can put hopefully some resources in that have been prepared. March of Dimes is exceptional with this, is really putting out resources. So people can just go through a basic checklist of things to think about that they might have forgotten about before they become pregnant. I think it's a good idea to go in and sometimes, unfortunately, you have to kind of just demand this from your provider that you want to go through a checkup, get an annual exam. And if your provider doesn't feel comfortable with this, then they should be able to refer you to somebody who can do this care for you. I wish all women could have the support. I had a uh, guest on not long ago who talked about how his house is in the same neighborhood as his daughter's and the grandchildren are there. And so there's this automatic built-in babysitting kind of situation that they've created. But it's not really just about that. It's about being there as family coming together. And not everyone has that sort of dynamic, unfortunately. So this book that I mentioned earlier, The Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan, was really designed for providers. This is the goal that yourself and everyone else that's involved with this, Dr. Tollefson, Dr. Erickson, Dr. Patak, and so many more. Your goal is to provide this information to providers who support women in health so that they can be informed as to the kind of conversations that they can have with their patients. Yeah, and I think it's great. And I think for patients, if they felt comfortable reading it and getting a little bit of information, I love it when a patient has said, we have been reading this and I have a couple questions about some specific things that I want to bring up and I'm concerned about. An informed patient's really the way to go to be able to provide mm-hmm. care. Yes, yes. So thank you for your contribution and everything that you're doing. It's just wonderful. It makes it very exciting for me to do what I do. Thank you. So let's talk real quickly about the Lifestyle Medicine Conference that's coming up in November this year. It will be in Orlando, Florida. What should we expect? Is the women's interest group involved at all? And why should people consider attending? I think it's a really, really wonderful conference. This year, there's still a little bit of caution about doing big meetings. So we are going to cap in-person attendance at just below 2,000 people that are going to it. Sort of every year, I get more wowed by the people that come and speak to us at the meeting. Prince Charles was pumped in at one point. I don't know if you were at the meeting when Prince Charles addressed us on the value of lifestyle medicine. Last year, I think we had five former Surgeon Generals who were addressing us. And I know this year, Jerome Adams, who was a former Surgeon General, is going to be speaking at the meeting. I do think that people around the world are getting the benefit and the power of lifestyle medicine. We're really seeing that. But for anyone who can't attend in person, there is going to be the option of doing it online. And I think the last couple of years I've done things online, they've been really powerful. Sometimes I've actually gone back to the talks a couple of times because I really wanted to make sure I understood what the speaker was getting at at that point. So for the Women's Health Group, we are going to do a half-day workshop in advance. Dr. Galati is going to be really leading that workshop. And we also are going to be doing an in-person meeting. Now, Maya, I know you've been part of some of our meetings, and I think the really powerful thing we're finding at our meetings is we're creating a kind of a, almost like a clearinghouse. We've got people who are working on great stuff and connecting them with someone who's going further with that work. Just recently, you may well know Beth Frades, Dr. Beth Frades, who's at Harvard Medical School, is going to be an upcoming president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. 
She is putting together a revision to her book on lifestyle medicine, and our menopause group is going to be leading the chapter on that. So they're going to be working with her. So we were able to connect them to be able to get through with this book. Dr. Erickson, Dr. Tolleson, Dr. Pathak's book could have never happened without our group as a place to connect. So I'd invite any of your listeners who are working on something in women's health to please do come to that meeting. Tell us what you're working on, and we may find a connection where someone else needs that service and we can work with it. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. I attended in 2019 in person and went in when the women's group I want to say that's when I joined the women's group, and it just feels like such a wonderful place to be. And I know that I have health coaches that come on, dietitians, people from various backgrounds who come on and have a passion for supporting women. And whenever I get a chance, I'll always bring them back to, are you familiar with the Women's Health Interest Group for ACLM? Because I think that would be a great fit for you to collaborate with other individuals. And then, of course, the Women's Health Interest Group is always working on resources, putting together literature to inform patients. So it's a very productive group, and they have four, I think there are four subcommittees now, right? Four subcommittees now. No, four, you've got to get on. Yes. No, two things that we're working on that I think are really important. We're working on a set of patient-facing handouts. A very common concern a lot of our providers say is, boy, I'd love to talk more about that, but I've just got eight more patients in the waiting room and I really, I don't have time to talk. But if we can give our patients something that's been reviewed and approved, I know that Kelly Freeman on our last call had been working on a handout for overactive bladder, which is a very common problem for a lot of our patients. And unfortunately, busy providers sometimes go very quickly to pills and procedures instead of addressing some of the underlying lifestyle changes that can go on with that. So we're trying to work on that as much as possible. And as you talked about our four subcommittees, Dr. Erickson heads our pregnancy subcommittee. So we're trying to work on lifestyle medicine and pregnancy. Dr. Michelle Thompson is heading up our menopause group. We've got a group with Dr. Galati on reproduction. And Dr. Commander is working on a group with uh, breast cancer. And I know they have more chairs and more leaders in them. They're the four that I can think of just now. Right. And Dr. Commander came on. Specifically, we recorded the episode for June to celebrate cancer survivors. And she came on with Dr. Simran and really talked about how do we support survivors after they're done with their treatments. And so I really do appreciate the way that the Women's Health Interest Group is organized. The subcommittees really does paint a picture of women's health across a lifespan. I feel like you've covered all those areas. No, it's really, really important. And, you know, Dr. Commander has really had a powerful impact on me. My own brother-in-law is now a lung cancer survivor. And we spend so much time thinking about screening and preventing and avoiding cancer. But often, I think the statistic is there are 12 million Americans who are cancer survivors out there. And what an opportunity for lifestyle medicine to help prevent a recurrence. That's right. It's a wonderful organization that I love to mention as often as I can. So Dr. McHugh, you have a Facebook group, and I was wondering if you can share whatever you'd like to share, the Facebook group, any websites, any social media that you would like for our listeners to visit. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up. The problem that we face is, uh, I think there's an old Johnny Cash song that good news travels slow, that bad news travels fast. We see sometimes scary information and bad news actually spreads like wildfire over the internet. But really basic health sometimes doesn't get quite as far for patients. So we're really trying to kind of compete here with some of the bad news that's out there on the internet. And your program is a wonderful example of spreading good news and spreading good information for people. There is a group for physicians specifically. It's called Lifestyle Medicine for Physicians that one can, if you put it into Facebook, you can find that group. And that's quite an active group. Dr. Deepa Coe, who is one of our female providers in the women's health group at UCSD, is one of the leaders of that group. And that can be one outlet for us. I also have a group called Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine that is open to anyone who's interested in women's health. We also have a similar tag on Instagram, Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine, where we can share ideas. And that's what we're really trying to do is share ideas. And that could be anywhere from great recipes to tips on getting exercise when you have a busy day to really sharing that knowledge across the board. And we'd love for people to get involved. And I think I'm very, very hopeful now with the channel that you've made on women's health that we're going to be able to use that as a place where we can disseminate good information 
on YouTube and videos for people that want to watch that. Oh, wonderful. Well, I really want to thank you. And I'm going to bring it back to Dr. Nancy Erickson, since we've been plugging people, our favorite people. Yeah. When I met her, I don't remember what year I met her, but I really got to know her in 2019 at the conference. And she said, you know, Maya, you could really play a significant role in the group. And I said to her, you know, Dr. McHugh, I said, but I don't have a background in healthcare. I've never trained. I'm not even a dietitian. I'm not a health coach, although I'm a health and wellness educator. And she said, with your podcast, you can. And so little by little, as I've gotten more involved, I feel very thankful for the opportunity to work with all of you to collaborate. I feel very honored. And I say that to say that there might be listeners who don't have a background in healthcare, but want to support women. And so we can all play a role in sharing information and supporting our mothers, our aunts, our daughters, all the women in our lives, because there are so many resources that all of you uh, providers make available for women throughout life. So all faces of life. I would absolutely agree with you. And I think that every doctor I know knows that we're not necessarily the best conduit. Sometimes you never know what's going to light a light bulb, even for any of us. The best, some of the best health information I've gotten has not come from physicians. It's come from mm-hmm. cooks and nutritionists and people that have educated me. So please do. And I encourage everyone to join, join in helping us mm-hmm. with this work. Absolutely. Well, it's always a pleasure, Dr. McHugh, speaking with you. You are doing great work. And so I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak with you again. And I just want to say thank you for being here. And thank you for sharing this information with our listeners. Thank you so much, Maya. Really happy to help. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts that helps us to spread our message. You can also head on over to podinbox.com forward slash HLS to leave me a voicemail. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening.